You're listening to a podcast from Blogging Heads TV. How are you doing? Good to see you, Bob. Good to see you, Ian. Let me introduce us. I am Robert Wright. This is The Wright Show, available on both streaming video and via audio podcast. You are Ian Bremer, uh, president and founder of the Eurasia Group, a well-known political risk research and consulting firm. You're also founder of the digital media firm G Zero, which gives me a chance to mention that I am publisher of the newsletter Non-Zero. I want to thank you for paving the way for that plug. Uh, Ian, that was, that was very nice of you. And they've been aligned, our two ideas, big concept ideas for a long time now, to be you fair. You know, we do. There is a lot in common uh, between our worldviews. We'll get to that, in addition to, apparently, a, a disagreement we have. So we're going to... Um, we're going to talk about uh, a couple of things, actually. Uh, first, we're going to talk about your brand new book, The Power of Crisis, How Three Threats and Our Response Will Change the World. And when I say brand new, I mean like today. Today is pub date, right? Hours, literally May hours 17. new. Yeah. So it's, be still, the, it's still wet. That's how new it, it is. Yeah. yeah. And how does it feel? You still in the... Uh, the, the, the the naively euphoric uh, stage of publication or... I can never tell with a book, you know, I mean, it's so much of you that you're putting out there and, you know, your views kind of evolve of the ideas of the book as you start talking about it with other people, as it sort of emerges into the public discourse. Mm -hmm. But uh, so far, so good. You know, I mean, I, I wouldn't do it if I wasn't excited about it. Well, good. Last, you know, you were on our show talking about your uh, another book of yours, Us Versus Them, The Failure of Globalism a few years ago. That was my last book. Okay, so we haven't missed a book in, in a couple of books. That's good. I'll try to keep that record intact. Now, we okay. are also going to talk about something seemingly not related to your book, perhaps, but I'm going to argue that it is related. Uh, and that is we're going to argue a little about the role of NATO expansion in Putin's decision to invade Ukraine. Uh, before I explain how I think these two things are related, let me explain how this came to be via kind of happenstance that we're going to talk about these two things. So I was on Twitter, as I sometimes am. Uh, I noticed that Michael McFall was denouncing someone uh, for believing that NATO expansion had anything to do with the decision to invade, as he sometimes does. And I stepped in and said, uh, Michael, I think you're wrong. I think NATO expansion definitely made invasion more likely. Let me know if you want to come on my show and debate this. He later DM'd me and did what I would call dodging a debate with me, but he might describe differently. In any event, it did not lead to a debate. You, however, I'm happy to say, meanwhile, had chimed in on Twitter publicly and said, hi, my friend, meaning me. Yeah. I'm happy to say. I like uh, you. Yeah, I do. That was the part of the tweet I liked. But then you said, I'm with Michael on this one. We can debate if you like. And so I said, sure, let's debate. Then I found out you got a book coming out. I said, let's talk about that. Uh, now, I'm going to read uh, a part of your book uh, that I think is close to a thesis statement and, and then tell you what I think the connection of that is to, to NATO expansion and see how you feel about that. So Love this it. is a, a quote from the book, The Power of Crisis, the brand new book. Uh, and you write, the unprecedented interde interdependence of all nations and the destructive power of today's technologies ensure that the human race can't survive a new world war, and we can't afford a U.S.-China Cold War that will make effective global cooperation impossible. That's why we must use the crises already breaking around us 
the lessons of COVID, the destructive potential of climate change, and the existential threat posed by rapid technological developments we don't understand to create a new international system that's built for today's and tomorrow's purpose. Now, I couldn't agree that, more. That is, that's damn close to a thesis statement. I agree with you. Bob. Thank you. I worked hours finding that, just, just <laughs> extracting this diamond I, know, I didn't light. make it easy. I this didn't put it on the cover. Light. No, you actually do make it easy. You're a very efficient, concise, pithy communicator. That's one reason people should buy this book. Uh, but um, here's the connection I kind of see to NATO expansion. I absolutely agree we can't afford a Cold War with China. I personally think we've egregiously mismanaged our relationship with Russia for the last 25 years or so. I think NATO expansion is part of that, an expression of that, not the only one, but I think it's it's one. And I think it exemplifies a tendency for uh, the uh, the the. The, the Amer- America's foreign policy uh, makers and executors to not do a great job of taking into account how other nations, other people, other players view the world and how our actions are likely to affect them and what kind of behaviors are they're likely to lead to. I, I think that that's an evergreen statement, but yes, okay. I, okay. <laughs> we, we agree. accept that. Yeah, absolutely. apparently. Uh, and, and what I want to say is we cannot afford to do that with China over the next 20 years. And I think we've done it with Russia over the previous 20, 25 years. I think NATO expansion is an example of that. That's a, a connection I see between the one, the one discussion we're going to have and the larger discussion of your book we're going to have. Tell me if you see other ones if you, uh, or, if, oh, yeah. or if you think there's something kind of wrong with that connection. No, no. First of all, I mean, to, to engage in the Russia connection, my book had to go to press on February 26th. <laughs> and the, uh, Tell hey, me, did it, any, it, did, had anything changed in the world in the last day or two? It could have been the 23rd, right? So, I mean, at least that. And, and, and the fact is that I was, it meant that I was able because the Russia crisis was just so obviously made to mm-hmm. fit into the context of this book. So I said, you've got to give me more pages. I need to write about the relevance of what just happened in Russia and why that's a crisis that also we can use to change the way we think about global architecture and governance. So it's obviously related and we should dive into it. But the the interesting disagreement that I think we're going to have on this issue um, is I don't think is going to come from the angle you expect it to come from. Okay. Because for example, when I think about China, and not mismanaging China. The WTO, I never would have argued we don't want a WTO. And when we created the WTO, the World Trade Organization, we didn't bring China in because China was nowhere near ready to be brought in. But we made it clear Mm -hmm. as China was getting more powerful that we want to integrate them into those institutions, into that rule set. And I, I firmly believe that it was a huge strategic mistake of the Americans not to get the Trans-Pacific Partnership done. Obama talked about it. He failed. He didn't argue it strategically. He should have. But the Trans-Pacific Partnership should have been an institution that the Chinese, if they were willing to actually bring their institutions and economy into suitably high standards, they should have been welcomed into that institution as well. So I, I believe that the principal mistake that was made by the West 
after the wall came down, after the Soviet Union collapsed, was not to be suitably inclusive of an expanding NATO and an expanding EU into a Russia that was frankly on its ass, not to do enough to help the Russians to get to higher standards, not to invest enough in Russia to make them aspirationally, not just the G7 plus one, not the NATO-Russia Council, neither of which really had any heft to them, but actually try to integrate them. So I did not have an issue with NATO and EU expansion and enlargement at all. I think the problem was we were never serious about what we were doing for the Russians other than shock therapy. Okay. So let's go ahead. I'm glad you brought up the WTO because I eventually want to get around to uh, something you're advocating, I think it's a World Digital Organization, a WDO. Yes. Definitely. A uh, data organization is what I call it. Da- same, same, it's the okay. same idea. Yeah. Okay. Uh, yeah, same idea. How to handle digital uh, technologies uh, and, and the, the need for international policymaking about them. The, the, um, I'm glad you mentioned that because I want to talk about that. And, and that is actually related to another thing I think we're going to have maybe a little bit of a disagreement about, which is to what extent we should focus uh, in our foreign policy on the difference between kind of democracies on the one hand and autocracies or authoritarian nations on, yeah, on the other. I, I that's think that's a big one. Uh, yeah, it's a big one. I think the Biden administration is making a big mistake into turning that uh, into the guiding light of our foreign policy. Strongly yeah. agree. Strongly okay, agree. Uh, but there's a little bit of that in your book. I want to eventually get to a little bit, just a little. Okay. Uh, and but I'll get to that. But but mm-hmm. let's. Uh, I claim there's a little of that in your book. We'll see. We'll see. We'll see. We get. Yeah. Well, people are on the edge I, of their seats. I'm open, dude. You we, know that. Like, we've I don't got so many reasons that people are on the edge of their seats at this point that I think we owe it to them to finally deliver on one of them. So let's have this uh, quickly, this uh, this NATO expansion argument. So sure. let me set the stage uh, this way. I mean, first of all, you know, as you know, uh, back when NATO expansion was first floated in the in the 1990s, a bunch of American foreign policy eminences uh, argued against it. I mean, not just kind of famously George Kennan, but Jack Matlock, who'd been the ambassador of the Soviet Union oh, yeah, under Reagan. Yeah. Uh, people, you know, ideologically ranging from Robert McNamara to Paul Nitza to Sam Nunn, Bill Bradley, Richard Pipes, uh, a whole bunch of people. And, and a number of them said this is going to wind up antagonizing Russia, leading to things we don't want. That they were talking about NATO expansion generically, just going beyond East Germany. OK, then later the issue that once NATO expansion was already underway, the issue of Ukraine came up. It was, you know, it was the Bush administration and George W. Bush was clearly wanted to, to, to uh, put Ukraine and Georgia on the membership, the future membership list for NATO. I want to read you a couple of things uh, that William Burns, who is now CIA director, was then ambassador to Russia, I believe, yep. uh, said. Uh, first, he, he sent a um, he sent a, uh, a, f- a memo to Condi Rice uh, personally, I think. She was the secretary of state. And, he, and I quote, he said, Ukrainian entry into NATO is the brightest of all red lines for the Russian elite, not just Putin. In more than two and a half years of conversations with key Russian players, from knuckle draggers in the dark recesses of the Kremlin to Putin's sharpest liberal critics, I have yet to find anyone who views Ukraine and NATO as anything other than a direct challenge to Russian interests. He added that it is, quote, hard to overstate the strategic consequences 
of offering uh, Ukraine NATO membership. Uh, and and he, he predicted, and this is interesting, that if we did this, if we went down this path, uh, it would, quote, create fertile soil for Russian meddling in Crimea and eastern Ukraine. He separately sent a different memo more broadly, went to the Joint Chiefs, a, a bunch of people in the administration, I, basically reiterating this. I will, I'll just share the title of that memo. The title was Nyet Means Nyet. Okay, so this is Bill Burns, ambassador to Russia. I'm sure you'd agree, one of the sharpest. Oh, my God. I love Bill. I've known him for a long yeah, time. He's, you have to. Uh, n- right. Nothing but admiration for, for Bill. Okay, so the, the, the other. He should, he should be Secretary of State. God knows. We're, we're, God we're, knows. God yeah. knows. He yeah. should be. Uh, the, uh, so, yeah, I, I actually advocated that. Uh, shockingly. Well, what uh, happened, Bob? Shocking, I mean, come I'll on. Tell you, Ian, it's the first time it's ever happened that I said something and it wasn't immediately turned into policy by the White House. <laughs> I don't know. Are my powers waning? What's going on here? I don't know. Maybe you need to move from Princeton and get to Delaware. I, well, look, I just figured it's if not George, far. It's George, not far. George Kennan lived in Princeton. I figured if it worked for him, but uh, apparently he had something else I don't have. So Jack Matlock, it was a whole cabal there. That's right, apparently. actually. Yeah, that's right. Exactly. Yeah. Maybe there's something in the water uh, yeah. that influences your views on NATO expansion. Um, so anyway, it, now in, two, in 2007, the year before this, Putin had himself at the, uh, the what is it, the uh, the the um the munich conference this annual security conference, munich security right? conference that's right. right he had laid down he had given a speech that got a lot of attention he was clearly not happy he said a couple of things he said first of all the u.s has been repeatedly violating international law uh iraq invasion uh kosovo intervention uh, and at that point, by the way, uh, Russia hadn't done this kind of stuff. They hadn't done transborder aggression. This is before they, the, the, the Georgia thing, certainly before Ukraine. He complained about that. He also complained about NATO expansion. And he basically said, look, y- you keep heading down this road of ignoring our interests and, and blah, blah, blah. It's going to be trouble. So, OK, so all this, the, the stage is, is set with all of this, with what he has said, with what Bill Burns and other people are saying in 2008. George W. Bush faces a decision a few months after Burns sends these memos. Should he go ahead uh, with the the plan to add Ukraine and Georgia to the NATO invitation list? To do so, he's also going to have to overcome opposition from France and Germany like nobody wants him to do this. But he does twist their arms. He gets a a kind of compromise, but basically the upshot is the, the name Ukraine goes on the list. And I would say the rest is history. Well, not exactly, but I would say that wasn't. Uh, an auspicious development. I, I want to ask you, if you had been president at that point, you had gotten this memo from Bill Burns, you would have gone ahead with it, nonetheless. No, I wouldn't have. You wouldn't have. I would not have, no. But again, I think we're, you're, you're kind of misconstruing the nature of my, my criticism. I would say I have two points. One I've already articulated, which I think that the original sin was not NATO enlargement, was, but was rather a lack of integration of Russia into our institutions, a sense that they were going to be left behind and everyone else was going to be taken. So I, I just have now, a different perspective on that. Now, that's, that, you know why that's interesting to me? For a number of reasons. One is that sometimes when I say, well, I think NATO expansion was a real issue for Putin, and, and I think there's a lot of evidence of that. People say, well, it wasn't just NATO expansion, it was the EU. And I say, I agree. I agree. There, there was that, too. And I don't think we man. I don't think we we searched. Uh, you know, remember, if you want to go back to, to 2014, uh, before the trouble started, where there was what some people call a revolution, other people call a coup. But in any event, after that, 
uh, you know, uh, Russia invades, uh, they seize Crimea, they, they start causing trouble in the Donbass, um, and so on. And, 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 and the issue there had been EU membership. Mm-hmm. And I thought even, even there, you know, Putin uh, basically strongly encouraged the president to uh, not, uh, not move toward eventual EU membership. He offered subsidies and so on. He, he, the president was persuaded, and then the president was basically overthrown. Mm-hmm. I thought there there could have been a more creative search for a solution to, you know, yeah, let e, let Ukraine move towards some kind of integration with Europe, fine, but make it less economically threatening to Russia. Do let make it entail less in the but way of severing when, economic so connections. Two, two points here. I want to get back to my original one, which we haven't really seriously addressed yet. Okay, but but let me. Well, let I, me I was uh, wondering if this was an instance of that. If you well, thought there, so there could I, have I been more integration, was, I think it was a mistake that when the United States agreed with the Europeans and the Russians. Uh, that said, look, um, you know, we, we have all these demonstrations going on in Ukraine, uh, massive problems. And of course, the Russians at this point, massively mistrustful of the United States, see George Soros and the CIA and the State Department's hands on everything, colored revolutions, and, you know, the Victoria Newland email, all the stuff that they now come back to that's really, you know, sort of a problem for them. We agreed that we were going to, we would accept that there would be a weaker presidency there would be a, an election at the end of the year with external um, external observers, um, and and that was going to be the future of Ukrainian governance. Um, and instead, what happened, of course, is there were massive demonstrations inside the country. The president of Ukraine is forced to flee, um, and the West wins. Well, that wasn't the negotiation. And so I think the perspective of the United States was, oh, well, the Russians lose, we win. It's the, you know, that's what the Ukrainian people wanted. We'll just accept it. Well, if we've already made that agreement, then we should say, look, Ukraine, this isn't what we said. If you want IMF support, if you want us to engage with you, then you've got to go back to that agreement that we had with Germany and Poland and the Russians, which is weaker constitution, you know, elections at the end of the year, international observers. And that's that's the way we go forward. But but I want to be I want to go back to the beginning which is that Russia has always been oriented towards the West. It's always been aspirational towards Europe. It's not just about Yeltsin when he takes over and the Soviet Union collapse. I mean, Putin, he wants to have the St. Petersburg Forum. The orientation of Putin from the early days is this is where I want to be. This is the tragedy. This is the great tragedy. just didn't offer that. And, you know, let's remember back in, what was it? Was it 1994 when we do the Budapest memorandum and the Ukrainians get rid of their nukes and we say, we're going to ensure your territorial integrity? Like from day one, we are integrating Ukraine into Western security space. From day one, we're saying, no, 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 we want you guys to be democratic. We want you to have economic reforms. Like this is just like the East Bloc fell apart. We want you guys to be part of Europe. And of course, Ukraine is fundamentally part of Europe. But frankly, so should Russia be. And that, for me, that's the mistake. So I don't get aggravated about NATO enlargement. I get aggravated about the fact that we left the Russians behind and that frequently we kind of either lied to them or didn't really care about them. And, and they're really pissed off as a consequence of right. that. 
And I think we should say, or I should say, I want to focus on pissed off and, and, and just the fact that I, I don't think it's merely a national security calculation on Putin's part that made him find uh, particularly the inclusion of Ukraine in NATO threatening, although I do think there was that. Bill Burns is right. Yeah, Everybody sure. in Russia thought that. that. That's certainly true. And of course, we would think the same thing if you imagine Mexico uh, joining some security alliance with China, Chinese weapons and military advisors, yeah. even troops start more coming to Mexico. More weapons were never, going over, more training was happening, more exercises. I mean, certainly Putin saw that Ukraine was becoming a threshold NATO state in the same way that Americans worry that Iran is becoming a threshold nuclear state. Absolutely, that was going on. Well, I think Absolutely. he thinks it was becoming, and he was explicit about this in his Monday speech before the invasion. Before which, the invasion, that's right. Where, where, where people say, oh, he barely mentioned NATO. I actually counted it up. He mentioned NATO literally 40 times. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And one thing that became clear is he, he, he considered NATO already a de facto outpost. It's like, look, you're sending NATO weapons in. You've got the advisors in. And he was kind of right. But, but what I, accept, I, wanted, I accept that. What I wanted to say was, it is on the one hand what the, the equivalent of what we would certainly consider an unacceptable national security threat, but it's more than that. It's partly about respect for Russia and respect. I think Putin identifies that with respect for him personally, especially yeah. given the kind of person he is and, and, and so on. And I think that the expansion of NATO, especially as it got to Ukraine, was both a, 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 you know, a, a national security kind of trigger, but also one of many signs Russia saw that we weren't doing what you and I agree we should have done, which is integrate them into the West and send signals that that's what we want that's to right. do. We, we didn't send did. those signals. No. We didn't do it. No. Now, I personally think NATO expansion, especially Ukraine, was one of the failures to send the right signal. Uh, but you don't you you don't. But it sounds like we agree on the on the broader failure to do what was, in a sense, natural after the Cold Cold War, which was to integrate Russia into the West. And, yeah, and we, bo we both see that as a failing of American foreign policy. Yeah. But I'm saying that in 1994, we were already sending the signals that we wanted to integrate Ukraine. Like that was already on the agenda. And was that because a good thing or a bad thing? At that, that was point? absolutely a good thing. But you have to back that up with Russia. You get to be part of all this, too. We kind of tried. We had this partnership for peace thing. Yeah. I mean, yes, we did. you know, there, there were early on, you know, there, there was that. But the well, anyway, but so we're just we as a country too far away, too inconsistent. We already won and we kind of won the Cold War without any blood and treasure being sp spilled. And it just made it easier for us. So yeah. there just well, there weren't that many people. And you've got people out there that like go back to the remember the who lost Russia debate. Jack Matlock was a big part of that. It was like, how did the Americans kind of screw up this incredible opportunity to like bring the Russians in after we defeated them ideologically? And they're people. I mean, remember, I lived in the former Soviet Union. I mean, I speak Russian. I've spent a lot of time with these people. And I mean, my God, they so wanted the economic and political freedoms that we had. Those were Russians. Those weren't just Ukrainians and Poles and Bulgarians. They were Russians. We really screwed that up. So for me, that was the big missed opportunity, not the expansion of NATO at all. Okay. So. Okay, that was a fun debate. Yeah, fun but, debate. but I want to say one more thing before we segue to uh, the issue of China, which is much more the focus of your book yep. and all of the all of the questions in which you embed that focus. Um, just. In, uh, in terms of this consistent failure to see thing, how things are going to look for from Russia's point of view, if you go back to 2014, OK, yeah. Yeah. and 
Again, you've got yeah. Yeah, well, you've got so before you got before that you've got a democratically elected president. Putin has persuaded him uh, largely through just you know public transparent subsidies to Ukraine. So far as we know, I don't know if there was money under the table as well. Who knows? But anyway, got a democratically elected president who's going to do what Putin wants. There's opposition to that in Ukraine. Fine, it's a democracy. It can work it out. Yeah, we got pretty involved. Uh, you know, again, we got Victoria Newland passing out cookies. She has this uh, to the protest. She has this phone call that she thought was private, uh, wasn't where she seems to be scheming, you know, orchestrating uh, the successor government, you know, saying, well, we think Yats should be the, the prime minister. Indeed, that turned out to be the case. And so anyway, we're providing Putin plenty of reason if he's psychologically inclined, which I think he is, yep. to view this as a kind of a U.S. sponsored coup. And, and, and you should understand he's probably going to be inclined to see it that way. And one thing that means, if he's going to see this that way, and the backdrop is this ongoing quest to bring Ukraine into NATO. And then so suddenly then you've got this new president installed by what he considers a coup. You, you should anticipate that his thoughts are going to turn immediately to Crimea, where there is a very important Russian naval base, yeah. which it has by virtue yeah. of a lease Agreed. with Ukraine. He's going to start worrying about that. It shouldn't shock anybody that he did what he did. Not only that, I mean, come on. Crimea was an autonomous republic, even under independent Ukraine. It had its own local parliament with a Russian tricolor being flown above it. I did survey research in Crimea. All of these people had nostalgia for the Soviet Union. They were not remotely considering themselves part of Ukraine. So no surprise there. No surprise there. And yet. We were all shocked. Right. I mean, I mean, I mean, the U.S., there were no signs that, you know, Obama said to Victoria Newland months earlier, hey, wait, <laughs> you know, we don't want to give a certain kind of impression that le- could lead to a certain kind of invasion. Yep, that was, now, OK, so had, anyway, I, so, if you had said that to Mike McFall, I wouldn't have said I'm on Mike's side. That's right. I'd be willing to say that to him. But that's fine. Then I'm uh, with you. Uh, the, the uh, OK, so now to move this toward your book uh, by way of China, do you my own view is. Uh, you know, it's kind of a different set of issues, certainly with China. But I don't think we've done a massively better job over the last, what, um, 15, 20 years? I don't know, uh, last 10, 15, of seeing things from China's point of view, anticipating the way they'd react to things. It, it's a it's a different, it's a subtler thing, I think, with China. Uh, there, there are less kind of obvious provocations. But I'm, I just don't think we've kind of exercised the perspective taking with them that I think it's going to be important. uh, It's going to be important going forward. What do you think of our record there? So um, this is um, part of this is a China issue. And part of this is a developing world issue. Um, I mean, there's just lots of questions of equity out there in the world that the United States has been less interested in than we should be. So I want to go to, um, since we're transitioning to my book, um, to go to the dedication of my book, which you may or may not have noticed. Um, and it's a it's a fun dedication. Is it the glass half full thing? That's or? right. So the dedication <laughs> specifically. Did you think of that yourself? I did. Absolutely. Impressive. To a, glass, to a glass half full, that first half was tasty. And I am a fundamentally glass half full kind of guy because, I mean, existentially, it's extraordinary we're even here. I mean, how can you complain given mm-hmm. the fact it's so improbable and it's so extraordinary and wonderful if you really think about it? 
But we need to understand that all of the global crises out there, we're responsible for. Like we've we've kind of taken the measures that have gotten us from three quarters full to half full. Um, and that by we, you mean humans or you mean uh, I, oh, I mean humans, but okay. I mean, first and foremost, humans with power. So I don't mean all Americans. I mean, a specific subset of Americans and allies that have led the world, um, you know, over the course of the past decades in particular. So if we want to address things like climate change, you want to address things like the pandemic, you want to address things like Russia invest- invading Ukraine, you want to figure out how to respond to them. It's a relatively small number of people that have most of the accountability of the underlying, you know, sort of Im- impulses that have gotten you into this G zero world, as I call it, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, and and I do believe that a big part of the problem that we have with China and the developing world, and they're different problems, but they're overlapping problems, is the is the radical unwillingness of Americans to adequately do that. Sure. Of course, that's true. But I also think that with China, there are much greater guardrails in the relationship because the level of interdependence between the two countries is so deep. And, you know, it's become very fashionable in Washington to talk about decoupling as if that were something that anyone was remotely either capable or interested in doing. But they're not. And I mean, look, one of the Horrible things about the American political system is how much it is completely captured by special interests. But that also is something that prevents politicians frequently from doing obscenely stupid things. And so it's both. It's both a, a serious structural problem that that you know makes the U.S. political system much less representative of its citizens. But it also means that you can have a political leader that can say things that are is in, are incredibly irresponsible, and there's literally no chance of bringing them into play. And and decoupling from China is one of those things, because, I mean, just the fact is that I mean, think about how many mid-tier American universities would go under if they no longer had Chinese students paying full freight. Think about how many Americans would no longer be able to buy goods at Walmart if nothing came from China anymore. Mm -hmm. Think about how many corporations across the board in terms of American sectors consider China to be their most important future growth market, whether it's the NBA or Disney or Goldman Sachs or you name it, right? And, And I mean, so when you add up all of those constellations of deeply powerful entrenched interests, some of whom are big corporations and some of whom are just people, um, you, you recognize that there is literally no chance of the Americans and the Chinese actually decoupling from each other in the foreseeable future. And that the crises I talk about in my book actually create more interdependence between those two economies, not less. Right. So you mentioned that there are just a number of policy issues that cannot be satisfactorily handled without cooperation between the U.S. China and China, and in fact, without global, or, uh, global or even, cooperation. Or, or even virtuous competition. I mean, we're not, we're not cooperating much with the Chinese on climate, but we are both rowing completely in the same direction because we both recognize that there needs to be a move to renewable energy and the Chinese don't want the Americans to dominate that space. And we don't want the Chinese to dominate that space, but we're both investing like crazy as a consequence of the need to make that transition. That's an important thing. Yeah. So what are the problems uh, that, that 
you see as being critical? There are, there are three categories, right, of, of kind of policy issues we need to address. Um, and plus the Russia thing. So let's say there's four. There's the new Cold War with Russia that is uh-huh. not with China, but it's with Russia. Uh, the second is responding to the pandemic, which is still going like wildfire in China. Now, North Korea. Um, then the, and and future pandemics. There's climate change mm-hmm. and responding to the need to deal with that massive transition and all of the impacts as a consequence. And then finally, um, the global crisis of disruptive technologies, proliferating disruptive technologies. Okay. And it strikes me, and and, and I, I kind of try to handle them in terms of imminence as well as existential scale of threat. But then look at them also through a lens of possibility and opportunity. And ultimately, hopefully, the book is more is is more hopeful and constructive as a consequence of that. Okay. Uh, now, I would I mean, I've long thought there's just kind of no shortage of issues. Uh, in fact, I mean, the origin of turn on zero. I mean, the reason it's yep. my newsletter is because it was a book of mine. And in the culmination of that book, I argued that there was a, a growing number of non-zero sum problems among nations uh, that could only be solved through uh, some kind of institutionalized cooperation, often institutionalized, sometimes informal. Um, but, uh, you know, and and uh, I, I things like, uh, you know, classic non-zero-sum problem, nuclear arms race. If, you know, if if you don't handle that, it can be bad for all players, can, can be lose-lose. Uh, I think I think bioweapons is a huge thing. You don't emphasize that a lot in the book, but that's would you agree? I mean, th- this is the kind oh, yeah. of thing, the degree of transparency you need to enforce any kind of uh, formal agreement or to, to deal with it normatively or whatever is a kind of transparency that can't exist during a true Cold War. Right. We yeah, can't completely. I read so I read Nathan Marvel's um, emergency piece on bioweapons a few uh-huh. years ago. And it scared the living Christ out of me. Uh, and so, I mean, clearly, I mean, I, the, the disruptive technologies chapter, which is the same length as the other chapters, I mean, easily could have been five times that length. Okay. And 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 the point was, I mean, I focus on cyber weapons. Um, I focus on lethal autonomous drones. I focus on AI uh, algorithms. And then I focus on quantum. So I picked four. But the reality is that compared to nuclear weapons, which, you know, when you and I were growing up were the disruptive technology that we said, wow, this could destroy the planet. We need to contain them. It is very important to have non-zero cooperation globally to ensure that doesn't happen. And looking back on it 80 years later, we did a pretty good job. Mm-hmm. And, and, and I will say that, though, you know, of the crises I look at in the book, the one that unnerves me the most is that it is completely unclear how to contain, adequately contain some of these disruptive technologies that very quickly can be in the hands of rogue states and rogue organizations, and even in some cases, individuals that can easily cause as much or more disruption than nuclear weapons ever had. And and we aren't even at the point where we collectively define the problem. So for example, I talk about a world data organization, but that's not the first step. The first step would be to have a group of global players that all kind of agree on where the science is and what the state of play is. So, I mean, I started getting more optimistic about our ability to respond to climate change, not with the COP summits, but with the establishment of the Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change, the you know the uh, I, the uh, IPCC, 
Um, and, and that's because you now have 195 countries that get together and they say, you know what? Yeah, we've got 1.2 degrees centigrade of, of warming. And yeah, human beings are responsible for it. It didn't just come from nature in a cyclical fashion. And, and this is what the implications of that are going to be. And so you, you literally, whether you're a carbon, you know, sort of producer and exporter, or whether you're, you know, you're rich or you're poor, everyone agrees on the science. There's almost no disinformation these days that is driving serious policy response in terms of identifying the problem of climate change. It makes mm -hmm. it so much easier for everyone, individuals, banks, corporations, governments, NGOs, to actually row in the same direction. We have not yet done that. We haven't even begun to do that in terms of the, the dangers of disruptive technologies. Nathan's paper was an effort in bioweapons to say, guys, guys, we need a global dialogue to like assess the state of play. That was, I think he did that seven, eight years ago. There's been nothing since mm -hmm. that, that at, at a global level. And that, that is desperately necessary. Okay. And in all kinds of, uh, in all kinds of realms. So, yeah, you focus on a lot on digital technologies, including uh, cyber, including AI. Uh, and uh, talk about AI a little. I mean, I've, I've always thought, you know, one of the scariest realms is the military application of AI. That's one thing you talk about. Yeah. Uh, both in terms of just arms race among nations, that, that's kind of scary enough, I guess, but also in terms of, of the ability of the technology to fall into the hands of non-nation non states. But anyway, talk well, and about- also, also the ability of the, of the actors, the human actors, not to understand what is driving the decision process, the pattern recognition of the AI algorithms themselves, mm -hmm. which is why lethal autonomous drones just need to be banned. Right. And we and we need a global compact on that. Like that should be fairly obvious. We we clearly understand. I mean, we're in a bit of a we're not in a cold war between the US and China, but there are aspects of a technology cold war where we say there's a lot of dual use technologies out there. And in those places, like if we've got advanced robotics that can be used for military purposes, we don't want the Chinese buying that. Right. We don't want them investing. In that. And I, I am fine with that. That makes sense to me. That strikes me as a useful place to draw a bright line between what the Americans do and don't want to do in terms of cooperation with China. But what we have not done is said, here are some areas where the, the proliferation of the technologies are so dangerous that the Americans and our allies and the Chinese need to work together to ensure that they are not going to proliferate, that there will be consequences, there will be deterrence, it will be illegal, there will be punishment. If we find that out, in any, if anyone is doing that, the way we try to with nuclear weapons. Mm -hmm. And you remember, I mean, the original Iranian nuclear deal, the Russians, the Chinese, and the West were all part of that multilateral agreement. Why? Because we actually have a global compact that we don't want nuclear proliferation. We have to do that with these new technologies. We don't have the architecture for it because they didn't exist at the time that we were putting together these agreements. Well, we also don't almost have the normative support for the idea of international law. You know, I mean, you, you're you're talking about the actual evolution of international governance where there right. would be real rules. You'd have to take them seriously. And there aren't that many realms where rules are being consistently taken seriously. I mean, that's one reason we have these disputes over islands. And that's one reason Russia for a while is saying you guys are invading countries. That's illegal, which it was. But now Russia's doing it. And 
you know, I, I, I sometimes think there, there needs to be a normative evolution uh, that, that creates just a kind of uh, psychological support structure for international law. International law needs to be taken more seriously. Uh, is, that, is, is that part of your... your uh... it, it is, but I think at a time of geopolitical recession where many governments are becoming more hybrid or illiberal, and where the United States itself is so divided and so uncertain about what it stands for, both at home and internationally, and where the Chinese are the second most powerful country in the world, but has a very different set of worldviews, politically, economically, socially, than the United States and the Western advanced industrial democracies do. I think that you will have more near-term success identifying the areas where such cooperation and support for such norms are critical, and then bringing together the groups of actors that can align on that. And we are doing that on climate. And that's not being driven primarily by Washington and Beijing. Instead, it's a multi-stakeholder approach. It's a bunch of banks. It's a bunch of corporates. It's the EU. Mm -hmm. And I expect that when you start talking about about um, disruptive technologies. And I will say I focused more on digital than bio, in part because digital is more aligned with a multi-stakeholder approach because technology companies are so act as sovereigns mm-hmm. in the digital space. So if you were going to create an intergovernmental panel on AI, it wouldn't be a government's only panel. In fact, I would argue the technology companies would be founding, you know, like core stakeholders, core members that would be not only constructing what those rules and norms would be, but would be bound by it, like mm-hmm. treaty bound by it. That's a new way of thinking about a post-Westphalian order, but mm-hmm. I think it's required. Okay. Yeah. And I mean, maybe one reason I, I emphasize international law so much is I, I do worry a lot about bioweapons in there. I just think there has to be comprehensive global agreement on what kinds of lab equipment are even allowed in any nation state yeah. to be used without certain specific kinds of monitoring Agreed. Uh, and so on. So, uh, but anyway, uh, so, yeah, so right. you, you, we're, we're, we're venturing toward this thing I alluded to earlier, where I, I might accuse you of seeming to have a little sympathy for the Biden administration's emphasis on this distinction between democracies on the one hand and autocracies. Now, my view on that has been that, look, there are so many critical globally existential issues, certainly collectively, even if any one of them may not seem quite existential. You put them all together, you can imagine if we don't address them, a major downward spiral for the whole planet. And given that fact, it's like my general view is we really can't, America can't afford to spend too much time trying to lecture other countries on how they're handling their internal affairs, as painful as that sometimes is, uh, you know, to 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 uh, refrain on that front. But uh, we're as I see the trade off, we're going to have to spend a lot of ammunition on just getting common rules of the road in terms of how nations treat each other their common obligations in terms of their external behavior. And it's like unfortunate that there are autocracies. It's unfortunate that there is authoritarianism. I, it just, it seems to me that so far, if you devote a lot of time to lecturing countries about that, sanctioning them about that, you wind up not 
uh, being able to to devote the resources to coming up with the rules of the road. So that's that's kind of been my way of of of, of thinking about it, right? Uh, so, I mean, I, I, yeah, I, I think yours is a little different. I strongly endorse um, the uh, the sanctions against Russia. A strong well, Russia is a special case, but I mean Venezuela, Cuba. I mean, you know, uh, I guess. Part of my problem with the autocracy versus democracy thing is it becomes a self-fulfilling prophecy. You sanction all these countries. You tell them they can't join your club because they're not good enough. Of course, you're going to drive them together. And then it's going to seem like there is this collective of authoritarian autocracies, right? Well, I mean, I, I was much more sympathetic to leading with democracy when it was obvious that the United States had a political system that could lead by example. Right. That indeed, that citizens in authoritarian states themselves aspired to be in a system like the American system. Um, that you know, when that's our our Trump suit, I have no problem leading with our Trump suit, and I think that helped us beat the Soviets and bring down the Berlin Wall. Now, there are a lot of reasons that's changed. I mean, one is that technology used to be the communications revolution, which basically aligned more with democracies. Now it's the surveillance revolution, the data revolution, which aligns more with consolidated authoritarian states. In part, it's because the United States itself has become so much more politically dysfunctional and divided. And many of our institutions have eroded significantly the Supreme Court, um, Lord knows, national elections, um, you know, sort of our media. Uh, but when, you know, when, so when you look at U.S. power, as it is expressed and as it is implemented around the world, there are many areas where I would say the U.S. is not remotely in decline. The role of the U.S. dollar, in my view, is not remotely in decline. The role of the U.S. military is not remotely in decline. We've lost a lot of wars, but I mean, the role of the U.S. military is not remotely in decline. Um, and then I could look at things like American universities. I could look at, you know, sort of the banking system. I could look at energy production, I could look at food production. And yet, when I look at the US political system, the fact is that the United States no longer can meaningfully and effectively lead a global conversation by saying democracy first. You can't do it. And so the idea that Biden would try to say we need a global summit on democracies and the fight with Russia is about democracies versus authoritarian regimes, like we literally, it is the weakest argument that he can make for the US on the global stage. And I get it, he's almost 80 years old. He came of age at a different time when that was the big argument, where ideologically we were winning big. But mm -hmm. we, unless and until we seriously address that, especially because the Chinese ideological system from their perspective actually works meaningfully better. Mm -hmm. than ours does, that they believe more in the China dream than they believe in the American dream. As citizens, they believe that. Mm -hmm. um, that I, I just think that it's really counterproductive for our American president to push in that direction. And I have had that conversation um, with the president. I ha I've had that conversation with the White House. Um, I, I think that's a problem. I mm -hmm. think that's a problem. Okay. Um, I guess let me read part of a passage from your book uh, that led me to think you had a little sympathy for this this dividing line between autocracy and democracy as a, as a point of emphasis. Uh, here, here it is. China's bid to develop cutting-edge tech on its own is the most significant geopolitical development since the Soviet Union detonated its first atom bomb in August 1994. 
In response, the world's democracies must build a comprehensive multilateral system to control the development and use of emerging technologies. Okay, and then I gather the idea is that the democracies build this thing, and then China is sufficiently incentivized to join it that we can kind of attach strings to the joining and get them to agree to certain kinds of things. And it struck me that some of those kinds of things were you know, more or less internal affairs of China, right? Having to do with how the trade-off between, you know, privacy and security and uh, internal security as it sees it in its own use of infotech and stuff like that. Uh, But but talk about this a little. Tell me if I've got this slightly wrong. Um, So, I mean, I would do it like EU membership where there are a whole bunch of chapters to it and you would be allowed to open chapters and integrate into those chapters as you and your society and your political system see fit. So there would be certain areas that the Chinese would obviously want to cooperate in. There are others they would perhaps never cooperate in. There are some that they might think about, so red, yellow, and green. I think that's perfectly okay. I mean, I look at the Chinese system today, and I'm deeply concerned about how dystopian a social credit system is likely to be on Chinese society, and I don't want them to export it around the world. I think it's a serious problem. But then I look at the Chinese saying, you know what? Um, we only want our kids to be maximum two hours a week on video games. And more than that, they lose it because we don't trust that these corporations are going to do anything to prevent horribly addictive behavior that's going to like actually change the way young people end up behaving and growing up as adults. And I think of a lot of a lot of adults in the United States that w- with teenage kids that would say, we wish the Americans could do that. Because the corporations won't do it themselves. They refuse because of the profit motive and, and because of the necessity of what a surveillance capital business model means. And I say to myself, well, the Chinese actually have something, have something to speak for on that kind of an issue. And even in the pandemic, you know, on the one hand, we have so much more individual autonomy in the United States. On the other hand, the Chinese look at the Americans and say, you let millions of people die. And we refuse to do that. And the Chinese actually really believe it. I I think their zero COVID policy needs to be much more flexible. I think they've made huge mistakes, but they don't. Mm -hmm. They actually believe that they are being vastly more responsible and accountable to the needs of Chinese citizens, especially older citizens, and that the Americans and Europeans just don't care. And look, I don't want the Chinese system. I don't want to live in it. I I certainly don't want it to dominate the world. But I, I certainly understand that ideologically, the Chinese have stronger arguments today that the Americans need to do a better job of countering, by example, than, than certainly they could have 20 or 30 years ago. And, and we need to recognize that. Yeah. Um, so, uh, you know, you talk in your book about how you think increasingly the world's uh, nations, well, you might say less developed nations, will be choosing between two technological stacks. Yeah. Like, the West will provide one, China will provide one, and uh, and it's in our interest uh, to get them to choose our stack. And and your fear is that, and I'm not sure, I mean, I guess by stack, you mean, uh, I don't know, operating system, you certainly mean surveillance-related software. Uh, and I guess the assumption is the Chinese stack is going to be more authoritarian in nature than ours. The uh, I mean, a couple of things. First is I'm not sure that it's actually China's 
driving aspiration to export its ideological system. My sense of China traditionally has been they just want to do business with you. If you will quit complaining about their system, they won't complain about yours as long as you buy their goods, kind of. So it hasn't seemed to me that inherently we need to worry about China like strong arming countries to use their technology in an authoritarian way. But it, it it does seem to be that we are now, for whatever reason, increasingly headed on two different uh, paths. I mean, this has partly to do with things Trump did uh, and, and, and so on by way of kind of divorcing, uh, you know, Huawei from the Android system. There are a lot of reasons for this. But talk just a little. I know you got to go in a few minutes, but talk a little about um, what part of this is intrinsically problematic uh, and what part isn't, if that well, makes sense? Uh, first of all, um, I, I think that the role of technology in society, which, as I mentioned briefly before, used to be much more towards decentralization. No one on the Internet knows if you're a dog. And now everyone knows what kind of a dog you are and exactly where you've been doing your business. Um, that is a model that is more intrinsically authoritarian, both if you are in China but also in terms of relations with Western corporations. And so we need to just recognize that actually the entirety of where technological progress has gone in terms of data um, and the digital economy has been away from functional representative democracies. And that Mm -hmm. we are not doing a good job of regulating that. And it's not clear that China is doing a very good job of regulating it. Further, there's the US versus China uh, stack issue But then there's also the corporations themselves, which exercise sovereignty in the digital space. Mm -hmm. And and those corporations um, themselves have different models. I mean, you have companies in the U.S. like Microsoft um, and Google that are, frankly, much more aligned with the U.S. government. And they're increasing and its allies and they're becoming national champions. Very interesting that, you know, Ukraine fighting Russia. The Americans are providing heavy equipment, but Microsoft and Google are providing the support on the cyber side. And those are that's a corporate decision to do that. Nothing mm-hmm. to do with NATO. Kind of interesting. Right. Um, and then you have a company like Apple, which is much more of a we just want to do business with everyone. We're a globalist corporation. Um, we want to ensure that in every country we operate. We have a very constructive relationship with the government that doesn't make us pay many taxes and just keep them at arm's length. And then you've got, you know, people like Vitalik Buterin at Ethereum and perhaps Elon Musk, too, who are saying, no, I think governments are going to go away. They're not going to matter. They're irrelevant. And technology companies are going to rule the world. And and that's what the blockchain is all about. That's what crypto is all about. Um, You know, that's why we're going to go to Mars. It's all and we're going to have our own governance model. And I mean, some of this is crazy neo-libertarian pie in the sky crap. But some of it does reflect the fact that in the digital space, governments are very slow moving and they don't have a, a good sense of what the hell is going on and how to and how to deal with it. And some of these companies really do. So I think it's not just about the United States and China. It's also about what the what the balance is of power between governments and technology companies in the digital space. And I think you got to you got to look at both of those things to understand 
what the eventual competition of stacks looks like, and also um, how society is going to function in those environments. Mm-hmm. Not at all clear. Because, I mean, it's not, I mean, if it was just the United States versus China, you could say, okay, the Europeans are going to be stuck more with the United States. That's just the way it is. And so they're going to try to regulate. But the reality is they'll be with the Americans. The Chinese will have a separate system. They'll get most of the poorer countries. They'll align with them. That's that. And and they won't do it because they're exporting ideology. They'll do it because it makes sense for their trade and their data systems. And they just want more data so they can make more money, so they can have more influence. Fine. But, you know, then when you start talking about, no, it's about which corporations end up being dominant. And then the real question might be, well, is the Facebook model dominant or is it the next Facebook in the metaverse that ends up being more successful? And what do the founders want? What are their ideologies and how do they relate to the state? That's a very different question. Mm -hmm. Okay. well, uh, you know, as I I I know you do have to go about now. uh, Right. So we should we should uh, wrap it up. I want to I want to say quickly that one thing this has in common with your previous book, Us and Them is there is emphasis that we haven't spent any time on uh, to speak of on the in- internal divisions within countries, certainly including the United States. There, yeah. and, and, and I think your view is that solving that problem is just part and parcel of solving the problem of international divisions. Uh, and, you know, I think also, you emphasize the Cold War with China. That is by far the China is by far the most consequential Cold War. I think you'd agree that it would be nice to get back on speaking terms with Russia before uh, terribly, terribly long uh, as well. Um, but we'll. So uh, I, I, I agree. Um, and my first chapter, which is perhaps the one that is most aligned with previous books that I've written spends a lot of time saying, look, the most powerful country in the world, the U.S., is also the most politically dysfunctional and divided among the advanced industrial democracies. And look, the U.S.-China relationship, the most important in the world, is also really dysfunctional with no trust and not heading in a great direction. And furthermore, neither of those things are remotely likely to be fixed in the next 10 years. And, and, And yet, and yet, I still believe that these global crises provide very significant opportunity for us to be able to improve, to create non-zero solutions, as you would say. And and I guess part of the reason for that is that even though I don't believe that you can fix the U.S. political system near term or fix the U.S.-China relationship, I also don't think either are close to breaking. Yeah. Uh, I, I think you're absolutely right about crises. I mean, the U.N. emerged from World War II and, and, and so on, as did the Marshall Plan, as you note in the book. Oh, gotta, I just remembered I got to do my own disclaimer. Whenever I talk about policy errors that I think the U.S. made that made uh, the Ukraine war more likely, I don't mean to absolve Russia of, of uh, oh, I know that. A, a blame. I mean, my, in my view, because I'm a stickler for international law, it's completely clear cut. Invading a sovereign country is illegal. Russia's bad. the criminal, period, still. Generally bad. Generally still, bad. If, if through the wise treatment of your neighbors, you can avoid crimes they might otherwise commit, you try to do that. Listen, yeah. I really recommend the book, The Power of Crisis, How Three Threats and Our Response Will Change the World. Like all your writing, very crisp, very clear, very insightful. Today is pub date. We'll get this up uh, tonight. Awesome. Uh, and people will listen to it and buy your book, and they'll be all the wiser for it. Thanks a lot, Ian. Great to see you, my friend. Thank you. Soon. Bye.